0: ready to go and uh, once I get started I turn it on and uh, they're gonna record my lessons and then they will or or Frank's teaching his lessons and then we just leave it here or give it back to Mike Arbia and they upload them to the church website if you know there's a, a resources tab on the church website that there's messages from a lot of different places and I've never had them there, and so they said we want your messages on there. So starting today, they're going to be there. So here we go. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 5, verse 20. Matthew 5:20. We started looking at this verse last week. I'll review a little bit, and then we will continue on with it. It says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He said it's a false teaching that salvation is earned by self-effort that Jesus is confronting head-on in this verse, uh, and which all Scripture, from beginning to end, contradicts. Outside of sin itself, the Bible opposes nothing more vehemently than the religion of human achievement. And as we've gone through life, as I've gone through life, I've asked a lot of people, how do you get to heaven? And they will tell you uh, by being good. Uh, But Jesus set the standard even higher than being good. Uh, He said the best of all the people in the society of Israel. The ones who live their lives continually striving to obey every law to the fullest extent will never enter into the kingdom of heaven based on their goodness. Uh, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes were always dealing with the external. Uh, He was always talking about the internal. Uh, And so in this passage, he begins to articulate uh, the manifesto of his kingdom, Beginning back in verse 17. And in this sermon, he wants them to know that his message is not something new. Uh, It's uh, not something that's a dramatic change. He's not rejecting the Old Testament. He's not giving them something that nullifies or overrules the Old Testament. Rather, he clarifies he has a total commitment to Old Testament revelation. And so by saying in verse 20 that true righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's simply saying the scribes and Pharisees have not lived up to the Old Testament standard. It isn't a new standard. They haven't even lived up to the old one. And so in these marvelous verses, Jesus assures us that he is totally committed to to the Old Testament, totally committed to it, correctly interpreted, correctly committed to it down to the very letters, as he said back in verse 18. Totally committed to it that obeying it results in blessing and disobeying it results in cursing, according to verse 19. And so he's, he's not inconsistent in any way with the Old Testament. Uh, he's not violating it. He's fulfilling it. And in these four verses, he gives them four great truths about the Old Testament. In verse 17, he talks about the preeminence of law. There's nothing like it. It's authored by God, affirmed by the prophets, accomplished by him. It's the highest source of revelation in existence. It's preeminent above all other books that have ever been written. And so he established in verse 17 the preeminence of the law. He had not come to destroy it in any sense, but to fulfill it. Second, in verse 18, he presents the permanence of the law. He came to show that the law would not pass away. No one could come and do away with it. It had to be fulfilled in every sense, and he, in fact, is the one who is in the process of fulfilling it. Now remember that when Christ came the first time, he began to fulfill the law. He is still fulfilling it, and he will fulfill it even in his second coming. It will be fulfilled, and until it is completely fulfilled, not one letter or one stroke will be removed from it. Uh, And that, by the way, is Christ's view of Scripture. It is all down to the very letters, the authoritative word of God, and will not be set aside, but rather shall be fulfilled, and he is the one who will fulfill it. And then third, he presents the pertinence of the law. In verse 19 he said, This preeminent, this permanent law is binding on the hearts of men. So whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's so preeminent, it's so permanent, that it's incumbent upon us to obey it even in its most insignificant parts. So anyone who dulls the sharp edge of God's law... Of God's holy word and teaches others a watered down sense of obedience or a watered down sense of principles shall be called least in the kingdom. But whoever takes it at face value and obeys it will be the greatest. Now, the preeminence and the permanence and the pertinence of Scripture finally lead in verse 20 to the purpose. Why did God give the Scripture? Why a preeminent, permanent, pertinent law? Why does God give us this incredible statement of truth? Why does he give us all these standards? What's the purpose? Verse 20 gives it to us, not by saying it, but by implying it. Verse 20 says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the implied truth of verse 20 is that the purpose of God's law is to show you that in order to please God, you had to have more righteousness, than you could come up with on your own. That's the point of it. That's the purpose. Now, we looked last week at who the scribes and Pharisees were. If we we have to have a righteousness that exceeds them, we ought to know who they were. And we said there's two types of scribes in Israel. There were civil scribes and there were ceremonial scribes. Civil scribes wrote down the affairs of government. They were like notaries and clerks. Who kept all of the government records? But in addition, there were these ceremonial or, excuse me, ecclesiastical scribes, and they were always involved in studying the scripture and determining what it meant and expounding upon it. They were the interpreters of the law of Moses, and originally they came from the tribe of Levi. And then there were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were, that was not an official office, it was a sect. Uh, the word Pharisee comes from the Semitic word, which means the separated one, the separatist. Uh, they were super fundamentalist, legalists who who separated themselves from everything. Uh, they kind of lifted themselves out of Jewish society to a, as a super elite group who alone knew what it was, what it meant to really walk with God. Uh, they convinced themselves that they were the real spiritual hot shots. And uh, the Jews as a people in the nation came to believe that. And so they had this proverb which said, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. Um, So as far as the Jewish culture was concerned, you couldn't get any better than these men. But Jesus says they're not going to make it. You can imagine the shock that went through the crowd when Jesus said those words. Uh, Because the people have looked up to these men. But that was the standard. So that brings us then where we stopped last week. And we want to ask another question. And that is, what was the nature of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? What's the nature of the scribes, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? If we're going to find out what true righteousness is, and it's got to be more than theirs, then we need to know what theirs was. And the question could be worded like this. What were they depending on for their salvation? Well, you know the answer. What was a scribe or Pharisee depending upon? They were depending upon the external. They were depending upon the system of human achievement. Uh, They said, look what I've done. Look what I do. And look what I don't do. I don't do this. I don't do that. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess and so forth and so on. So first of all, their righteousness was external. In fact, it was only external, an outward observance of the law. They took little consideration of motives or attitudes. No matter how much they may have really hated a person, if they didn't kill him, they didn't consider themselves to have broken the commandment against murder. Uh, No matter how much they lusted, They did not consider themselves guilty of adultery or fornication so long as they didn't commit the physical act. And that's why, as the Lord goes on to illustrate the phoniness of their external religion throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, He repeatedly says, you have heard that it was said, and then He quotes something that they taught from Scripture, and then He would say, but I say to you. And He would explain that God was concerned about the internal attitude of the heart in regard to that particular command of Scripture. In other words, he was saying, you've been living a system of external observance, but I'm telling you what God wants to see is what's on the inside. And that's what we will be studying in the weeks to come. Uh, They were never concerned with the internal. They were always preoccupied with the external. Look over at Matthew 23 for a moment. Matthew 23, verse 25, Matthew 23, gives a good picture of the external character of their religion. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. In other words, you're great on the outside, but you don't do anything about the inside. Verse 26, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now that's pretty straight stuff, wouldn't you say? Uh, You're rotten on the inside, although you've cleaned it up on the outside. Uh, Exacting observance of ceremonies was the big issue, and their whole system was superficial. Now folks, we shouldn't read this and think... Oh boy, I, am I ever glad I'm not like the Pharisees. <laughs> no, we need to examine our own heart in this regard because it's very easy to get wrapped up in a superficial kind of religion. It's very easy to go through the motions of prayer and reading the Bible and attending church and there's doing all those things and yet there's nothing going on on the inside. Uh, And life can be superficial. These people had it all together on the outside, but not on the inside. And that's why when they said to him, you know, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't give them an external rule to obey. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest, the great and foremost commandment. Uh, Look back a page in your Bible, you should be at Matthew 23 probably. Uh, look back to verses one to three of Matthew 23 he says it says there then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses therefore all that they tell you do and observe but do not do according to their deeds for they say things and do not do them in other words when they sit in Moses, seat as the authority to teach you Moses' law, do it. Do what they say. In other words, even if a donkey speaks the truth to you like Balaam's donkey did to him, respond to it. But on the other hand, Galatians 1.9, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel, something that isn't true, don't listen. Let that person be cursed, damned to hell. So if you hear the law of Moses from them, obey it. Listen to what they say. But the end of verse 3, he says, But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to say, They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. In other words, when they speak the law of Moses, do it, but don't pattern your life after them. They say one thing and they do another. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were working hard, shining up the outside, polishing it real well, and doing nothing at all about the inside. And that's why our Lord confronts them as self-righteous hypocrites. In Luke 16:15, the scripture makes a similar statement. He says, you are like those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. In other words, you've got a great religious reputation, but God knows your heart. And what men highly esteem about you is an abomination to God, because it's all external hypocrisy. And so these people were trying, (coughs) as so many have done, to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It can't be done. In Galatians 2.16 it says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. And at the end of the verse it says, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. You cannot be justified by the law. You cannot be justified by the flesh. It's impossible. And so all of their external actions were fruitless and useless. Second, in understanding the nature of their righteousness, it was not only external, it was also partial. It was also partial. Back in Matthew 23, it says... Uh, in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. This is interesting. He says, You tithe those tiny little things like herbs. You're very precise on the externals, but you have omitted the far more important matters in the law, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then in verse 24 he says, In other words, you are blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Uh, Now the point he's making here is this. You guys are really big on the little things and the external things, But you ignore the truly big things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, their their righteousness was partial. Uh, They only accommodated themselves to the things that they could handle. Nothing more. It was ritualism, which is nothing more than making your religion fit your capabilities. Uh, They substituted their traditions for the law of God. And by keeping the traditions that they themselves had invented, they decided that they were serving God. In Mark 7, verses 8 and 9, Jesus told them, Neglecting the commandments of God you hold to the tradition of men, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Just imagine, they abandoned the law of God that they couldn't live up to invented their own traditions and then convinced themselves that by keeping those traditions, they were spiritual. So their righteousness was external and it was partial. Third, their righteousness was redefined. It was redefined. As I said earlier, they made up their own rules, so what they wound up doing was redefining everything. Uh, well, yes, that's what God said, but what he meant was this. Uh, And so they gave it a new meaning, just redefining it in terms of their own comprehension, taking an internal thing and making it external. And they redefined it and invented a system that they could maintain. Of course, way back in Leviticus 11.44, God had told them, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourself therefore and be holy, for I am holy. And Peter picked up on that idea in 1 Peter 1.15 when he wrote, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And yet what did they say? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And they went on to recite their own holiness. You see, the standard of holiness is God. What does Matthew 5.48 therefore uh, say? It says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So the scriptures are saying to them, you are to be holy. How holy? As holy as God. As perfect as God. Well, they knew they couldn't keep that. Uh, they couldn't be that if they took the scripture at its face value. So they redefined it to accommodate their own unholiness. They lowered the standard. Fourth, not only was their righteousness external, partial, redefined, it was also self-centered. It was self-centered. It was produced by self for the purpose of self-glory. They did it on their own. They manifested a lack of dissatisfaction. They, they weren't dissatisfied with their own sinfulness. Uh, and true holiness always comes out of dissatisfaction. Uh, when you mourn over your sin, when you, when you cower in the corner as a beggar, when you hunger and thirst for a righteousness that you know that you can't earn, then that's true righteousness. Uh, but for them, they believed that they were righteous because they had worked out their own Righteousness. They didn't need God to make them righteous. In other words, in their minds, they were righteous already. That's the issue that Paul was aiming at when he wrote those famous words, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. They boasted because they had their own righteousness. So they, there they are, the scribes, the Pharisees, with righteousness that is external, Partial, redefined, and self-centered. Now we come to a third question, and that is, what is the nature of the righteousness Christ requires? Well, I already told you the answer. He requires absolute holiness. He requires absolute perfection. He requires both internal and external righteousness. The sons of Korah wrote, the king's... Daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. When the inside is beautiful, outward beauty is appropriate. But without inner beauty, outward adornment is pretense and sham. Now in our text here in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The the word surpasses means excessive, extremely, over and above, absolutely greater. Uh, It was used of a river overflowing its banks, uh, emphasizing that that which is far in excess of normal. Uh, The Lord requires genuine righteousness and holiness that far exceeds anything human and that exists... Only in the redeemed heart, the standard of righteousness that Christ sets is absolute righteousness. If someone asks you, "How good do I have to be to get to heaven?" the answer is, "You have to be as good as God." How perfect do I have to be, perfect to enter His kingdom? As perfect as He is. How holy do I have to be to get into the kingdom? Just as holy as God is holy, that's how holy. At that point, most people will realize that no matter how religious they might be, they can't do it on their own. No one can be as righteous and perfect and holy as God. So that leads us to a fourth question, which is, how is that kind of righteousness obtained? Where do you get that? I can't do it on my own. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. No one could be more righteous than a scribe or Pharisee on their own. Uh, So how are they going to get that righteousness? In fact, Jesus' disciples realized that. And so in Matthew 19.25, after Jesus said it was harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, their question to him was, then who can be saved? They got it. Well, listen to what Galatians 2.16 says. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the flesh no works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So how then are we justified? By faith in Christ. How then are we made righteous? By faith in Christ. That, folks, is the gospel. Uh, Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul says that righteousness is apart from the law, and that the Old Testament testified to that. And then he says in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Isn't that great? Where do we get that kind of righteousness? By faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 4.3, we see it again. It says, for what does the scripture say? In other words, what does the Old Testament say? It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How righteous did Abraham have to be? Just as righteous as God. Just as holy as God. You say well Abraham isn't going to make it because Abraham committed a whole lot of sin. You're right. He did. He lied about who Sarah was to protect his own hide. Twice. Twice. (laughs) He slept with Hagar instead of Trusting God's promise of an heir through Sarah. Uh, He committed a lot of sin. So how could he ever attain that righteousness? Well, it says right there that he believed God and that it was credited credited to him as righteousness. Romans 5.17 says it again. "For For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more... Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Notice that it calls it the gift of righteousness. Isn't that great? It's a gift. That means you can't earn it because it's a gift. And if you're trying to gain your own righteousness, you're going to be lost forever. If you want to reach out and take a free gift by faith, In Jesus Christ, his righteousness is offered to you. Romans 5 ends in verse 21 with this statement. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, the only way that you can ever be righteous enough to get into heaven is by the Lord Jesus Christ imputing his own righteousness to you. It's a gift from him that you could never earn. Listen to Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, watch this, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law was fulfilled in us when Christ took our sin upon himself. That's a tremendous concept. You know, if you heard me read that and you felt complacent about it, then you're being complacent about the greatest truth in all of the Bible. Because God has set a standard that we could never attain and has given us the fulfillment of that standard as a gift by simply putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's an incredible truth. On the other hand, Romans 10.3, speaking of the Jews, says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now listen to verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you want to know what Romans 3 through 10 are about, they're all about how to gain a righteousness that's unattainable except by receiving it as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you obtain the required righteousness. 1 Corinthians one thirty says... For by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who, came, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let me tell you something. When God looks at Bruce Mills, he sees me just as righteous as he is. When God looks at Bruce Mills, he sees me just as holy as he is. When God looks at me, he sees me just as perfect as he is. Why? Because when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, God imputed to me his righteousness, and I stand before him as pure and undefiled as Christ. That's my standing before God. How good does a man have to be to get into heaven? He has to be as good as God. How do you get to be as good as God? Only one way, by having God give you his goodness. How does God give you his goodness? When you trust Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. That is an incredible fault. No man could ever dream that up. So we've asked the questions, who were the scribes and the Pharisees? What was the nature of their righteousness? What is the nature of the righteousness Christ requires? How does that righteousness become ours? And that then brings us to a final question. What about those who do not obtain this righteousness? What happens to the people who never receive this righteous gift, who may work very religiously to get to heaven? People like the Mormons and the JWs, who faithfully go door-to-door trying to win people into their cults. People like the Muslims who pray five times a day. Or the Hindus who continually offer sacrifices and gifts to any of their 330 million gods. They're striving with all their might to obtain their own righteousness. They have said that Jesus Christ is not God... And thus they have not only denigrated his personhood, but they have rejected and nullified his work on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the dead. And without Christ as God, and without a substitutionary death on the part of the God-man, and without a literal bodily resurrection of the God-man, there is no attainable righteousness for them. And those people are working themselves right into the deepest hell imaginable, and that's precisely what's happening. Jesus says so here in verse 20. He says there, unless your righteousness exceeds one that is external, partial, redefined, and self-centered, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Greek grammar there uh, is the strongest negation that is possible in that language. What Jesus is saying is you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it isn't even a possibility. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. You will be excluded from God's kingdom. He's saying here's the standard of righteousness. If you reach the standard by faith in me, you'll enter my kingdom. But if you try to do it on your own, you can be as religious as you can possibly be, and you'll never get there. The kingdom of heaven is the sphere of God's blessing now and forever, and you'll never enter that sphere apart from faith in Christ. Later on in chapter 7, verse 13, he points out these two possibilities. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, And the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. I hope you realize that there are many people who think that they are on the road to heaven. But they're not. They're on the road to hell. They're all religious. They're all trusting in their religious activities to get them there. Jesus says there are many who enter through that wide gate. And he defines the many a few verses later. In verses 21 and 22, when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? They're going to say, Lord, here we are. We're the religious folks. We've done all kinds of fantastic things in your name. In verse 23, he says, "And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." You see, we practiced the law by faith in Christ. We the law was done away with by faith in Christ. These people are practicing lawlessness. And then he goes on to illustrate how a fool builds his house on the religious works of religious works on the sand. And when the waters of judgment come, that house is going to crumble and the foot of the the, the fool who lives in it will be doomed to hell forever. On the other hand, he says in in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. You know what he's saying? He's saying there are a lot of religious people But there's only a few regenerated people. Mm -hmm. You see, that's what he's saying. So examine your life. Are you really righteous, or is it really just a ritual? Do you really know Jesus Christ, or are you counting on your own goodness? So Jesus says, No, I'm not setting God's law aside. I will uphold God's law, I will purge God's law from the barnacles of man made corruption. I will reestablish its preeminence, its permanence, its pertinence, and I will reiterate its purposes to show you that you're a sinner. And that's when you turn that standard into one that you can attain by yourself. If you do that, you've lowered it to the point it will exclude you forever from the kingdom. They had developed this religion of human achievement that was going to do nothing but damn them. Listen, you can't make your own standard. Think of it this way. Imagine you're going to a baseball game, and the tickets are $10. And you arrive at the ticket booth, and you object furiously. And you say, I know both of these teams well. Neither one of them is worth $10. I'm only going to pay $5. No more. Well, the guy at the ticket booth is going to say, get out of line, buddy. Let somebody else get up here. The tickets are 10 bucks. No matter how much you hold the point of view, that they are lousy teams, no matter how much you impose upon the gatekeeper, he is not interested in all your arguments. You either pay the 10 bucks and go in, or you go home and forget it. Why? You're, because you're not in the business of determining the price You're just in the business of responding to the standard. God has set the standard, and God doesn't let people negotiate that standard. The standard is faith in Jesus Christ. It's God's heaven. God lays down the terms, and all you can do is respond. You enter on his terms, or you stay out. You see, there was once a... Pharisee who tried the Pharisee's system of righteousness. And he was a super Pharisee. Listen to what he had to say. Philippians 3.4. His name is Paul. And he says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. Paul says, listen, when you want to talk about self-centered religion, if you want to talk about how good a man is in his own flesh, I was the best. I met every standard man-made religion could devise. From man's perspective, I was a shoe-in. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, here he concludes, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I'm a living illustration. I'm a Pharisee who had all the credentials, and I count it to be nothing more than a pile of dung in order that I may gain Christ." and have his righteousness. That's what salvation is all about. And that brings us to the end of verse 20. And I'm looking at a clock and going, there's no way I'm going to start the next <laughs> section. So do we have any questions or comments at this point? I hope that this study, which has taken us, what, four weeks to get through these four verses, pretty much a verse a week, I hope that it has helped you understand, have a better understanding of the relationship of the believer to the law. Um, And as we proceed, what I'm going to do next week is I'm going to do an overview of verses 21 to 46. Uh, Because that is, uh, you know, we're going to... Get into that um, 48 48 21 to 48. I'm going to do an overview of all those uh, before we start because you have six major topics in those verses. There's six illustrations that Jesus gives, and he's illustrating what he's taught in these four verses here, verses 17 to 20. He, you know, he says. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he says, and here's six illustrations as to how it does. They say this, but I say this. So that's where we're going with it. Uh, I'll do the overview and then we'll go back and we will start working our way through each one of those individual issues. Murder, adultery, uh, vow keeping, you know, all kinds of things. Divorce. There's a popular one. So anyway, okay. Any other thoughts or comments? Bruce, you destroyed my self esteem. Pardon? you destroyed my self esteem. I've destroyed your <laughs> self esteem today. Good. I didn't do it, but <laughs> Word did. You're welcome, Daniel. Thank you, that was great. That okay. Was All right, let's uh, Frank, would you close us with prayer and we will be Dismissed. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the amazing, the amazing grace that you bestowed on us through your Son Jesus Christ. We thank you that your standard is your perfection, and yet uh, we cannot attain to it. But by your grace, you have bestowed it upon us through your Son. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We